Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus Van Staden of the University of Johannesburg Center for African Diplomacy and Foreign Policy. Good afternoon, Kobus. Good afternoon. Happy May Day. Happy May Day for those of us in the socialist world. You know, is South Africa technically a socialist country? Not technically, but but de facto, they pretty much are. <laughs> well, here in Vietnam, where it's definitely a uh, a socialist country, we uh, we had the day off, so it was very exciting. Uh, one person who did not, unfortunately, have the day off is uh, Ryan Knight, who's joining us from Spokane, Washington, uh, where Ryan is a student. Uh, you're a senior, correct, Ryan? Yes. Okay, yeah. you're a senior at Whitworth University, uh, majoring in international studies and peace studies. I always get a kick out of peace studies as a major. Do they also yeah. offer a war <laughs> studies, by the way? No, we don't, not here, okay. but I've, I've heard of other universities that do. So. Okay, uh, but uh, Ryan yeah. is joining us on the show today as our special guest in part because, well, he stood up and got on our Facebook page and said, I have something to say and I want to come on the show, and we, we love that. We've invited, uh, you know, students and professors and pretty much anybody. This is an open forum. Ryan is living proof here that it works. Uh, he just kind of posted on our wall some of his ideas about what he talked about, and uh, we replied. So uh, Ryan, though, has a very unique unique background. Uh, so he's studying in Spokane, Washington. He studied then for nine months uh, intensive Chinese at <coughs> Sichuan University in China, in southwestern China. Great food, by the way. Uh, and then also yes. uh, uh, five months in Tanzania, in Tanzania. You were in Arusha, correct? Arusha, Dar es Salaam, and Zanzibar. Okay. And then you're now uh, currently writing your senior thesis on comparing how Zambia and Tanzanian, uh, uh, both Zambia and Tanzania, are managing Chinese investment in their mining sector. So we are so thrilled to have you on the show. Thank you so much for kind of raising your hand and stepping up. So uh, we are unfortunately recording this on a Wednesday midweek. Normally we record on Sundays. Uh, but uh, as many of you know who live in Africa and in Southeast Asia, Internet access is something of a, a touch-and-go kind of thing. Uh, and so we had some Internet connectivity problems this weekend. Uh, and But as a result, we're not going to address a couple key issues that I'm hoping Cobus will put on the agenda for this weekend show on Sunday. Cobus, uh, the aid data report that came out this week, a very controversial report that uh, Professor Deborah Braudigam, she kind of punched a few holes into it, but yet the mainstream media really took off and ran with that. We'll hopefully address that. We're also uh, missing this week uh, the Times uh, CEO Africa Summit, where former Kenya Prime Minister uh, Raila Odinga and uh, Ghana's President John Dramani Mahama uh, really came in the defense of uh, of their deepening ties with China. We'll, we'll probably talk about that. And uh, one very quick shout out as well to The Guardian, who did an incredible series this week, uh, China, Soft Power and Hard Cash in Africa. So a few things that we're going to push to our next show. This show, though, we're going to really focus on uh, some of Ryan's research. And we're going to take a look at Chinese traders and merchants. Now, this has been one of the themes of our show uh, going back to the very beginning. And in particular, the reason why we're talking about it now is because there was a, a, an incident in Cameroon where Chinese traders came under attack. And one of the things we're going to talk about and get the perspective of, of Kobus and, and, and Ryan is whether or not the pressures that are building on this individual merchant, the small, medium enterprise level, are those the perceptions of the diaspora Africans and the media? 
or are they genuine problems on the ground? And we're going to kind of look at that. It's an incredibly sensitive issue. We'll get the perspective of our, of our guest today. Also, we're going to bring up an issue uh, related to agency. Now, this is a word that uh, I'm not familiar with. It's new to me as a non-academic here. So our, our wonky nerds will explain to us what agency means. <laughs> These are the academic elites here with their very fancy language. Uh, but it, it, it really comes up in the context of the role that China – and, uh, and the West have with respect to uh, dealing with, with African countries as it relates to structural adjustment programs from the IMF and the World Bank and also China's no-strings-attached policy. So we'll talk about African governments and their interaction with those various foreign institutions. And finally, we're going to talk about a discussion that we had on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash China Africa Project, uh, about whether China's political system offers lessons for Africa. This, of course, was a, a, a column or an op-ed. You know, in China, it's not always that clear. Put forth by Xinhua, the new China news agency, that really said the political system in China is a model for Africa in many ways, and that sparked a very vigorous debate. Okay, let's get right into it, Kobus. And uh, there was uh, uh, some disturbances that happened in Cameroon last uh, last month, but this really is part of a broader narrative now that we see the pressure building from the bottom. This is not coming from the top or the state-owned enterprises or the official investment coming from China, but these are these small enterprises. We've talked about this on our blog quite a bit. We've talked about it in the show quite a bit. But why now is this issue coming back to the fore, to the front? Well, um, I think one of the reasons is that there's just a lot more migration, you know, so so people are more aware that there's a lot of, of migration from China to Africa. Um, and I think it's it's coming up in different African countries. So you, you see as kind of a succession of, of African countries suddenly coming out against, for example, tra- you know, small-time traders, Chinese traders, um, trading in, in marketplaces in Africa. I think frequently it's a, a populist political move, but I also tend to think that sometimes it tends to get a little bit blown up by the foreign media. Um, and I think they, you know, they, they, they have a bit of a two scorpions in a bottle kind of approach there where they kind of shake the bottle and hope that you will fight, you know. Um, and that's, that's my instinct. I don't know if you agree. Uh, I absolutely agree is that I think it does fit into one of the narratives that the that the international media has with respect to, to, to the Chinese in Africa. And one is this question of assimilation. And it's ironic because in many ways, it's the ultimate assimilation that's causing the problem here. It's the fact that the Chinese are getting so granular in their business investments. And we're talking, when we say Chinese here, these are unofficial Chinese. This is not, again, something that is sanctioned by the state, that is tracked by the embassies in Beijing, uh, in the capitals. In fact, many of these Chinese merchants really complain that they are, uh, you know, isolated and alienated from the embassies. They get no support. Um, you know, Ryan, talk to us a little bit about your experience in Tanzania, and you are applying for a Fulbright scholarship, and in your personal statement, you really talked about some of the interactions that you had with some <coughs> of these individuals. Yeah, it was um, really interesting to go... So. Um, a lot of the time I was in Arusha and Dar es Salaam, and in Dar es Salaam I spent a lot of time in the Kariako market area, um, and I talked to probably about 15 uh, traders there from China. A lot of them were from, actually, a lot of them were from Fujian. Um, it was so interesting talking to them, um, and the the farther I removed myself from that central market area, the more integrated they were into, um, into Tanzanian life. And um, what, what I mean by that is that 
um, when it, going up to the the, um, the Chinese traders, a lot of them were um, doing business, were very active um, in trying to, to get by, but they, um, for the most, almost uh, every single one of them were very frustrated with their jobs. Um, they were very frustrated with, with Africans, with Tanzanians. Many of them said, Wobushi Juan Heyrun, I don't like black people. Um, but as I moved outside of the Carioco market area, I found um, people who had connected much better with their communities, um, who were having much better experiences with, with Africans. Um, so it was really interesting to see kind of that high, um, that high stress um, trading environment had really sort of worn down the, these traders. Um, and they were so um, just like kind of tired and angry um, and were trying to, to sell a lot of um, – they're actually selling shoes, most of them. Yeah, so um, it's these kind it was, of – It was really nice. These, these very low – you know, most of the products were shoes and were, were basically kind of low-tech type of products, correct? Yes. Uh, and the, um, yeah, then one of the most interesting conversations was with a woman named Ling. Um, and she talked about um, something that I heard from a lot of them too, but specifically from her was just kind of the fear of theft um, that every time they, she talked about how every time she hired a Tanzanian, um, something would be stolen. Um, I think she was making a generalization, but um, and she, she also, the night before she had been um, pushed down by a group of youth um, and had her phone stolen. Um, so she was having a kind of a, a rough experience. And uh, that was something that I heard from a lot of uh, traders in Carioco market, but outside of Carioco market, when I met doctors, when I met motorcycle salesmen, kind of higher end products, um, that was where things seemed to be a little better with the relationship. Cobus, let's kind of step back a little bit and break down the issue into into a couple of pieces here. So part of the fact is that they are these Chinese merchants are foreigners, and as being foreigners who don't speak the language, don't have local networks, don't necessarily have local knowledge, they're vulnerable. So it may not have anything to do with the fact that, you know, so Ling and her, her bitter frustration and her vulnerability may have nothing to do with the fact that she's Chinese, but that she just doesn't fit in. Um, that's the same pretty much in any culture, that you're vulnerable if you don't have that type of protection. Yeah, I think that's true. Also, I think there's um, aspects in, in African culture where people who get robbed, where, like when minorities get robbed, it's free, it's seen as sometimes not such a bad thing in a way because uh, maybe I'm, I'm oversimplifying it. I'm not, I'm not I'm putting it sophisticatedly <coughs> enough, but there is a kind of a, an in-group, out-group tension. Um, you know, kind of, it's not necessarily a culture that's, that's a very individualist culture like the US where every single person has the same rights. It's more a situation where your rights is dependent on the particular bigger, bigger group that you come from within the society. So the fact that someone is there on their own without a, without a kind of a group to support them and then also that they are a business person and then are, are understood to have money like lots of money, even if these particular Chinese people and many other immigrants actually don't have a lot of money, people just assume that they do have a lot of money, which means that if you rob them, A, there isn't a lot of fallout because there isn't a, you know, a, a social group that's going to come and get revenge, and B, they already have money, so they, they'll just take more of their money that they have in their mattress, you know, kind of, and, and, and you know, so, so it's, it's not going to destroy them. You know, well, I think I think there are um, aspects of that. I might be putting it too too you know primitively, but I, I think there might be aspects of that in, in I, certain countries. I, I think there's a, a huge range of you know. So the anecdotal experiences that Ryan has uh, are 
very different from the ones that I had doing my research in the DRC and in Kinshasa. And I write about this on the China Africa Project site. If you look for an article called "Meet Mr. Chen," and Mr. Chen, uh, he was in the t- in 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 the far townships away from the center of of Kinshasa, and he is uh, again from Fujian. And Fujian is a uh, it's a very common province that you'll find immigrants not just in Africa but also in North America and in Europe. Uh, they tend to migrate in much higher numbers than other Chinese do. But what's interesting about this was the fact that he, when he came, obviously he came to the DRC illegally. He just crossed the border from Rwanda, and he joined an association in Kinshasa of Chinese merchants. These, this association provided him with loans to start up the business, uh, and then it also provided him with relationships uh, through the through the police. And so, for example, what would happen is when he would be shaken down uh, by uh, either other police or by gangsters or by independent criminals, he simply picked up the phone, called his association. The association called the police that they were paying off. They then sent people to kind of, you know, confront the bad guys. The point is that they were really part of a network. And even these individual, you know, small business and these Chinese were part of a bigger network through the establishment of Chinese uh, associations that operate in in various cities around Africa. And I guess, you know, Cobus, one of the key takeaways from this discussion is the fact that it varies dramatically from city to city, country to country. So the situation in Malawi, which we've talked about last year, where the government is trying to push uh, new laws that really restrict the, the Chinese businesses in the, in, the, in the major centers of towns, uh, all the way to Ethiopia, where there, it's against the law for Chinese entrepreneurs to, be, uh, to establish businesses, to Ghana, where we've seen it's getting out of control. So I don't think there is an African experience when it comes to this, because it really varies so much across the different borders. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I think I might be, I might be speaking from a Southern African or South African, you know, kind of position, which is, tends to be a bit more hard as nails, you know? Yeah. Go ahead, Ryan. Oh, um, it's just really interesting you say that. And I, I wonder if, um, because I know there have been associations that have been attempted to form in Kariko, and I'm not sure if they've actually managed to get one off the ground or not, but I think, um, I mean, they, uh, it was interesting to see all of the Chinese shops were, sort of located in the same area in the market um, for the most part. Um, and then when you moved outside, then they're um, outside of the market area, they were more scattered. But um, something I was actually interested to ask you is if um, you see, because it, it was interesting, in, um, I, I saw a BBC article that in 2011, they actually reportedly kicked out all of the, um, all of the, the Chinese, um, or asked to leave all of the Chinese low-level traders in Kaliako market. Um, but then when I was there in 2012, um, they were still there. Is that something that you see pretty standard in, in African cities where officials will come in and say you have to leave and then they just don't? Or what well, happened? You, you, yeah, you have a big problem. This is, again, something, an issue that's come up uh, in Ghana. It's come up uh, also in South Africa as well is enforcement of immigration rules. So, uh, you know, you know, this has been a key issue, Cobus, in South Africa, which Noseweek pointed out in their article of a lack of enforcement of immigration rules. Also, uh, one other key point that Ryan brings up is a discrepancy between national legislation and then local enforcement. Oftentimes, rules are passed in the capitals, which are then not 
not either not not carried out for any number of reasons. Either there's corruption at play, either there's a lack of resources, or either there's just a lack of will because people have better things to do. So that might those are all the kind of complicated issues that really get in the way of enforcing immigration rules. And and you know, let's go back to Ghana, Kobus, because in Ghana this has been a particular uh, frustration that on the one hand the the government moves in, arrests illegal <coughs> gold miners, and then you know a week later they're freed yeah no i mean it's that that happens a lot it happens a lot in south africa as well um you know as and for all of the reasons that you said frequently also because the police is uh very underpaid so you know that that obviously tends to heighten corruption so you have a situation um that in south africa for example a friend of mine um, is a journalist and she covered african immigrants uh, illegal immigrants being deported from South Africa. And so they're all put on a train and then they're all like, you know, ridden on the train to Mozambique. Um, and like 10 minutes outside of Johannesburg, the train kind of slows down and almost everyone jumps off the train because the train driver had been bribed and also the, the, the cops had been bribed. So by the time the train reaches Mozambique, there's not a single immigrant on it. It's only the cops. The, the cops take a train ride to the Mozambican border and back. So, you know, kind of that happens a lot. And of course, you know, it's in, in the case of South Africa, it's these are immigrants from everywhere, not only from China. Yeah, let's get back to the Cameroon situation. And in, in Cameroon, you know, there have been six killings of Chinese migrants since 2004, three this year alone. So it does appear that there's a step up in violence. In, uh, in Cameroon, there's been, you know, Chinese merchants have been protesting. So they've been, sh- they shut down their shops for a week in, in, in two of Cameroon's main cities, in Yaoundé, the capital as well. And this really brings up one of the critical points here because, you know, the Chinese now more and more since the scale is getting so large so fast. And this is something that I'm, I don't think a lot of people fully understand. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of new Chinese immigrants that have migrated to Africa over the past, say, five to ten years. And it is a permanent shift in the demography of Africa. And as a result of this, they are actually providing, uh, you know, services and businesses that have real needs. And this is one of the issues that we get into a, a rather heated debate on our Facebook page is that, you know, the diaspora reacts very, very strongly to this. And, and you know, you know, Kobus, this, this question of is the media telling a narrative that may not actually reflect the, the situation on the ground? But also the fact is that the diaspora may also be reacting very emotionally to this because it is a massive change in the ethnic makeup of their countries and their communities that they may not be comfortable with, familiar with, or even understand. Uh, you know, so, so Ryan, when you were in, in, in Tanzania, my, I guess my question is, were the services that were being provided by those Chinese merchants uh, appreciated and valued and, and frequented by local customers, or did you get the sense that they were, um, y- you know, that, that they weren't doing very much business and these, they, they were really struggling to fit in financially? Yeah, that's... Something you've talked about on the show before, actually, is and I, w- when I was in Tanzania, I was living with host families. Um, so I was spending all my time. It, it wasn't really I wasn't in a foreign bubble. I was living um, with with host families. It was a really great experience. But talking to them and something you've talked about in this program, a big concern was the low quality of um, Chinese products in in Tanzania. And we had dozens of teacups that would just break suddenly when as soon as you poured hot water in them because and then you say, oh, the Chinese again. Um, but the um, <clears throat> The, so, so there was a concern for that. Um, and then, but it was also interesting because I also met um, Tanzanians who had gone to China and bought goods 
um, and brought them back to be traded. Um, so it was really kind of a, a across. Um, it, it was there were there were there were trading on both sides, um, and it, again too, it, it really depended on what city you were in. So in Dar es Salaam, um, much more urban. Um, there was a kind of a, a more negative perception I, I perceived of, of Chinese traders and as opposed to in Arusha, strangely, where um, the Chinese were kind of um, somewhat mythified. Um, I guess that happened in, in, in Dar es Salaam, too. But uh, in most of the connection between people living in Arusha, it seemed like, and, um, and Chinese people wasn't so much through trading as much through um, there were some Chinese um, dukaladawas or, or pharmacies where you could get much cheaper medicine at, at those Chinese um, pharmacies as opposed to um, Western-style pharmacies. So people really had a more positive view in Arusha, it seemed like, or at least my host family. Um, yeah, you know, Kobus, it, it the final point on this before we move on, you know, and this is, again, my consistent point that I've been making is that there's two sides to this coin. On the one hand, if we if we promote the idea of ejecting all Chinese merchants from uh, from Africa and really enforcing, you know, those 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 laws, legitimate as they may be, I, I don't actually have an issue with that. But one of the things we're doing is we're actually, you, you know, taking money away from the average consumer. Those cheap products and crappy and you know just no good as, as some of them may be. There's all that's not necessarily the case for all of the Chinese products that are brought in. And we've talked about this in the context of the Walmart strategy that Walmart in the United States. You know, it was really looked down upon by, you know, liberal elites in, you know, New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Spokane, probably. Um, <laughs> but at the end of the day, the working poor benefit from Walmart more than anybody else because those lower cost, cheaper quality products allow a limited budget to go much farther. So, Kobus, you know, what, what's your final kind of thought on this issue as it relates particularly to what's happened in Cameroon where there seems to be more violence? the perspective of the diaspora and the media, and then the reality on the ground. That's actually an interesting issue. Like, I was I was wondering now, that as, as you were speaking, I was wondering whether that has a connection to the fact that the diaspora, you know, in, in our experience on the Facebook page, the diaspora seems to be more anti-Chinese trader than the actual Africans who live in Africa. And I wonder if that has something to do with the fact that the, the diaspora tends to be more... Uh, whether there's a class issue, you know, kind of whether the if you if you're in the diaspora, you have a you you more you tend to be uh, more elite, um, and so so they tend to look at um, the 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 Chinese traders as a problem threatening African businesses rather than as as an opportunity for poor Africans. Um, I don't know, you know, that that might be that might be one one issue in terms of Cameroon. What was very interesting for me is that is this tactic that the Chinese actually shut down their shops. Um, you know, so I think I was, I was, I think that that is very interesting. You know, kind of if, if there are a lot of Chinese traders and they represent a big chunk of, of retail in a city, then that gives them a certain amount of power. And if they become the victims of crime, then they can simply say, look, we go on strike. Um, I think in, in very, um, cosmopolitan cities like Johannesburg, that probably won't work, but uh, it was an interesting tactic. 
Well, it's something that uh, we are going to have to continue to talk about because it is not going to go away as much as many people would like it to go away. Uh, but this is, again, a permanent fixture of many and a growing number of African communities. Uh, and, and how countries deal with this will actually determine uh, so much about the future. So we will we will pick this, this subject back up again. Um, it, this gives us also a chance to talk a little bit more about our Facebook page. We're at facebook.com slash China Africa Project. One of the exciting things about our page is the fact that there's this incredible discussion that goes on. And and we've talked, we've mentioned this before, 80% of the population of our Facebook page is between the ages of 18 and 24, mostly from Africa. And you can see how incredibly engaged this population is. And there's a very, very light touch on, on deleting things. You know, the rules that we have for, for deleting content, and this has been something very clear, if you swear on the Facebook page, doesn't matter if you have a great comment, but if you drop the F-bomb or the S-bomb or, or some kind of, you know, uh, negative ethnic slur or whatnot, we delete that just because we're trying to have a very positive, productive conversation. We also delete any links that are out there without any text, any context, because we don't want anybody fishing and putting spam up there. And that's basically it. So, you know, so almost everything else we let go, even criticisms of you and me, Kobe, as many as there are from time to time. Uh, but we, we do invite everybody to come and check that out. You can also follow our Facebook page on our mobile app, both uh, on iOS and on Google Play in the for the in the Android marketplace. So let's move on to our second topic. And it really came up uh, this week in the Time CEO Africa Summit where uh, a, a number of very, very prominent African leaders said they were rather excited and thrilled over the fact that the, that African governments now have a choice in terms of dealing with either the West or with China. An issue, Cobus, that we've talked about is the rise of Brazil and even India in Africa, which gives yet even more choice. And so the fact is that the stranglehold of the IMF and the World Bank uh, for decades in imposing structural adjustment programs and really putting on massive conditions on African governments in terms of managing their economic policies, either through the influence of former colonial powers or through uh, macroeconomic, you know, theories, um, now they're breaking it. And so, I guess this this word agency. Um, would one of you two academics please explain what the word agency means and how it relates to African governments and how their interaction with uh, China and uh, and the West? So, Ryan, let me give it to you first, and I'm going to put you on the spot. Yeah, maybe Kobus. I'm still in the the depths of my research paper, so maybe Kobus can correct me if I if I say anything wrong. But um, the my, my my paper is looking at, at agency, and um, agency is really connected with sovereignty and the ability for um, African actors to to sort of do what they want with their sovereign rights to sort of control their resources, um, to set policy, and not have outside actors tell them how to run their country. Is that correct, Kobus? Yeah, that's exactly how I understood it, yes. Okay, so, and, and this is again, you know, our, our, on Facebook, our community has taken a much more kind of pan-Africanist kind of nationalist move, and this idea of sovereignty has become something very important. Um, and so, so Kobus, what pisses me off about this discussion is when you hear people defending African sovereignty, uh, you are also, and so I'm going to come in defense of the IMF and the West, who I've, as you know, and I've not taken on that point of view for a long time. But this idea that, you know, you're defending corrupt elites, 
you know, Africa as a continent is a wealthy, rich continent. Nigeria as a country is one of the richest in the world. The DRC as a country is one of the richest in the world. And the list goes on and on and on. But yet the people remain mired in poverty because of corrupt government leaders. So the idea of protecting a country's sovereignty really undermines the people because it reinforces those elites. So, Cobus, is there some legitimacy here to the idea that the no-strings-attached policy promoted by the Chinese that basically says, we'll give you the money, we won't interfere politically, really is giving too much agency to the African government, whereas the IMF and the World Bank, who impose structural adjustment programs, they want conditions on democracy and governance and whatnot, and they want poverty alleviation programs, etc. The long list that the international donors want uh, goes on for a very long time. Is there some legitimacy to that? Well, it's it's a super complicated question, um, and I think you know, kind of, it, it tends to differ according to which particular African country you're speaking about. So, one of the one of the reasons we we're speaking about this um, this week is that there was recently a very interesting um, article published in the Guardian um, about the situation in Malawi, and particularly um, the IMF imposed structural adjustments in Malawi because um, for a bunch of different reasons. Um, but, you know, among other reasons, because the Malawian government was pretty much running out of money. Um, and Malawi is very donor-dependent. So a whole a whole chunk of Malawi's economy is completely dependent on aid. Um, so the moment that aid gets withdrawn, the, the Malawian economy starts falling apart. Um, and you saw that um, there was, uh, you know, the, the IMF ins- insisted that Malawi won't get Eight, you know, they 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 nego- they were played hardball in Malawi, and they they um they said that they in order to get a new aid package, Malawi has to adjust some of its some of its econo- economic policies. They have to withdraw um, subsidies for fuel. They have to uh, devaluate the kwacha, the the local currency, which Malawi then did, and then it turned into a situation that's a bit like. Uh, something that we saw in the 1980s and 90s, where suddenly everything in Malawi was incredibly expensive. Uh, Malawi is landlocked, so they are more dependent on on imports than a lot of other African countries. So suddenly fuel, 20% more expensive, you know, kind of household products, 30% more expensive. Poor Malawians started protesting in the streets. It turned into chaos. Um, So it... You know, so that, that, that's what we, that's one of the reasons why we discuss this is, um, asking is, you know, why is Malawi kind of stuck in this 1980s narrative while so many other African countries are jumping to new relationships with China, for example? Well, Malawi lacks the resources that a lot of other countries have, correct? Am I missing Appar- Apparently, you know, like for, for the longest time, Malawi was completely based on agriculture and they were the, the, one of the tobacco capitals of the world, which is, you know, not a great thing to be um, and uh, but apparently they might have found oil. They might have found oil beneath Lake Malawi. Um, so there's talk about a new Malawi petro economy coming maybe in two three years, but it, it, it hasn't been. You know, no one is sure yet. They're still they're still testing. Yeah, but uh, you know, oil as we've seen from uh, from West Africa has no bearing on improving the lives of of, of the average population. Exactly. So exactly. I mean, it's the oil curse. Ryan, go ahead. And then did, did Malawi go through a structural adjustment in the 1990s like so many other African countries did, or did is this their first one? I'm actually not you, sure. I actually okay. don't know. 
Well, the structure... it, it sounds really similar to Tanzania in a lot of ways. And I thought, because um, actually Tanzania just discovered um, oil in the South, and I'm, I'm, I think you've talked about it before, but um, the, the, there's actually going to be Chinese investment coming into that oil field in the, in the South as well. And there's been a lot of protests against that. But their structural adjustment was very hard. And um, I thought a, a quote from their president was really, um, do we have to pay our debts or do we have to feed our children was sort of the, the torn between. So they were... Um, the, the the agency of Tanzania was completely stripped away during the, those 1990s, and they're sort of getting that back now, um, and hopefully in some ways from Chinese investment, that they're able to have more actors sort of to choose from um, with, with investment. Well, let's kind of step back a little bit and talk about these structural adjustment programs. They're known as SAPs, and for those of you who are not familiar with them, they are controversial not just in Africa. Uh, some In recent history, the 1997 economic crisis here in Asia, uh, the IMF came into Korea, came into Thailand, uh, also in Argentina. It imposed very, very strict, strict guidelines uh, that had a huge and disproportionate impact on low income and, and working poor. And I guess that's where the big you know, objection comes is that the rich don't get penalized the way that the poor do. And in some ways, this is also uh, fed this idea that the structural adjustment programs really are in line with what is, you know, loosely termed as the Washington Consensus, which, of course, is the idea that this liberal economic theory, small L, not large L, not capital L, the idea of low trade, uh, low trade tariffs, uh, you know, really an American model uh, of governance. And so the Chinese step in now and they say, listen, all of this structural adjustment garbage, all of us telling you what to do, you're not going to do anything. We're not. And it's one of the reasons, Kobus, that so many African governments, uh, Paul Kagame, you know, among them in Rwanda says, listen, it's just easier <coughs> dealing with the Chinese. I don't have to actually put up all this BS in terms of, you know, the hypocrisy. And in the article in The Guardian, the hypocrisy is pointed out. The fact is that the UK is not following the own guidance from Christine Lagarde and the, and the IMF. Uh, so there's a, a real double standard here in many respects between the medicine that the the French, the Germans, the, the 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 and the British take for themselves, and then the standards and expectations that they put on poor developing countries. Yes, and in this case particularly, it was very clear because as the UK was saying that they're not following, you know, the IMF's uh, rules, the U the UK themselves were putting pressure on Malawi to actually follow IMF rules. <laughs> so it, it you know, kind of, it, it was really clear. I think the other issue is also that um, frequently in cases like this, the you know, kind of the I the IMF imposes uh, a devaluation of the currency, like they did in they, they cut the the value of the currency by half in Malawi. And what that causes is in the first place, it's not only it's very hard, not only very hard on the, the working poor, it's very hard on the middle class. It tends to knock out the middle class completely um, and really widen the wealth gap because people's <coughs> savings just evaporate. Um, in, the same, in the same situation, it makes it almost impossible for the country to develop. And there, I think, is where the, the Chinese play a really important role because the, the Chinese actually build the infrastructure that the countries need to kickstart their economies again. Um, and if your currency is been devalued, you can't afford to build anything. And also, let's bear something You're in just mind. trying to keep petrol, petrol at, the, at the service station. Yeah, let's keep one um, other yeah. point in mind here. You know, the China Development Fund, 
which is basically the development bank of the Chinese government, uh, is significantly larger now than the IMF and the World Bank, uh, from what I understand. And so in some ways, the, the IMF and these, these 20th century and 19th century institutions, um, you know, are, are being eclipsed by, by, by the Chinese just in sheer scale and size. We, we remember the most high-profile instance of this was, of course, in the DRC with the Sickle Mines deal, which was a $9 billion deal when it started. It was eventually brought down to $6 billion deal, uh, really eclipsed uh, the, 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 the package on the table from the IMF and, and the Congolese said, you know what, IMF, we don't really need to deal with you anymore. <laughs> uh, and so, and that really kind of scared them. You know, uh, Ryan, final comments on this. You know, I, I am very, very negative on the IMF and both the World Bank. I feel that they have led to many of the problems that exist in Africa, uh, to, today. Uh, and that all of the per, the criticism that uh, that people have for them is absolutely 100 percent deserved. Um, and so the idea that that African governments have a choice now and they have the opportunity to basically shop around for the best development deal uh, to me is is a really a positive thing that that should be encouraged. Definitely. Yeah. Um, just to uh, I'm kind of in the same camp with you on the IMF. But w- one thing that's worth noting is. Um, at least in the 90s, looking at Tanzania's economy, it was a mess. There was um, really no other option than to bring in the IMF and the World Bank. Um, but what's really interesting, and P- Peter Craigland actually wrote a really interesting um, piece on this, and I think it was in the, um, it, was, it was in a book about India and China. But he talked about how the IMF and the World Bank have actually, in a lot of ways, by requiring trade, liberal, trade liberalization, um, by lowering tariffs, they've really opened the door for Chinese investment to come in. Um, and uh, they've, they've set terms that, so that um, technology transfers and things can't be required as easily by ta- um, African governments, um, which has made it much easier for ch- um, foreign investors, specifically the Chinese in this case, to come in um, and, and benefit from that. So in a lot of ways, when uh, people in the West are criticizing China um, for investment policies and, and development aid that may seem um, Sort of negative in a lot of ways that was set up by the IMF and the World Bank when they were requiring these structural adjustments um, that have really, um, really taken away the agency of, of Africans to sort of decide their own, um, their own, the, their own way of running their countries. Well, there you have it. If you didn't know what the word agency meant, uh, as I did at the beginning of the podcast, uh, I think we have uh, a couple good examples for it. Uh, so this sovereignty issue is going to be a big one, and it's going to be something that really separates the the IMF from the Chinese approach. The Chinese are, are really going to hold firm to their no-strings-attached policy. Uh, it is controversial in the West. It is something that really you know gets that emotional, guttural reaction. You know, As we talked about how the African diaspora react to the Chinese uh, migration that produces an emotional reaction. Oftentimes, this issue uh, produces an emotional reaction on the part of Westerners, and particularly those in in Washington, London, and Paris, who really uh, believe in the IMF for other people, if not for themselves. So let's move on to our third topic. And speaking of emotional, re, uh, you know, emotional reactions, we got quite a bit of debate on our Facebook page on this one. Uh, Xinhua, which is the New China News Agency, which is the main uh, news uh, arm of the Chinese government and the Chinese Communist Party. 
Party published uh, an, 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 an article. It's hard to tell if it's a column, an opinion piece, an article. You know, they kind of these all blur together with Xinhua sometimes. Uh, entitled "China Political System Offers Lessons for Africa." Let me read the first paragraph in Cobus. Then I'm going to get your reaction to it, uh, and then I'll actually share a few of uh, the comments that we got on Facebook. Uh, Africa should take advantage of the deepening relations with China, says the, the, the article, to study Chinese political model and come up with lessons that can enable it to develop its own political system that is inclusive, encourages economic growth, and will promote ethnic cohesiveness, said a Kenyan expert on Tuesday. Now, of course, they're quoting a Kenyan expert, but that very much fulfills the view that the Chinese have of their own political system. Uh, and uh, and it's one that, you know, in, in, a, in a very, very short period of time, under uh, 30 years, China China has gone from being a desperately poor back backwater country to being the second largest economy in the world. Now, China remains a very, very poor country, but yet on most of the UN uh, kind of targets for calorie intake, rights of women and children, rights for uh, uh, um, you know business owners and whatnot, China has improved dramatically. So on the one hand, it's an authoritarian uh, system that has, you know, Awful, awful political repression in many cases. But on the other hand, it has delivered economic goods to an enormous number of people. What are Africans to think of this in many respects, uh, Kobus? This has come up in a few different contexts. Recently, um, a senior politician in South Africa made a similar point saying that the civil service in South Africa, which is pretty much based on the Western model of a, of a neutral service, civil service, should be politicized and that um, they should think of themselves as cadres of the party um, to be deployed by the party and, and kind of living out of the party's uh, economic, you know, kind of political philosophy. And of course, I think for people who grew up in a Western system, that sounds alien and scary. Um, you know, kind of from the perspective of, of the ruling party in South Africa, they see it as a way to streamline things. And of course, they are, you know, they are very convinced that they're right in their political uh, philosophy. Um, so so it's, you know, kind of, I think a lot of Africans are saying that Western democracy didn't actually work as well for them and that they're looking around for different, for different options. The, what worries me or what, what I wonder about is to which extent is the Chinese model replicable outside of China? I don't think it, might, I don't think it really is. No, I mean, I think the system may not be recoverable and nor do you want it to be necessarily, but there are pieces of it that, uh, might, re- might be worthy of emulation. We've, we've seen special economic zones, for example, uh, pop up in Zambia. You talked about in your academic journal that you published, uh, this spring, how it, the economic stories, and again, politics and economics in China are absolutely interlinked as they are everywhere. So you can't kind of separate them and say, well, that's economics, that's not politics. The economics are a by product of the political system. And so you see, you know, lessons that are being taken. Ethiopia is taking, you know, not necessarily the best part of it. Ethiopia is taking the censorship part. And Ethiopia is cracking down on political opposition. And they're studying the Chinese model on that. Okay, let's kind of sit that out and kind of say... <coughs> you know, that's awful and that should be condemned at every turn. Uh, but at the same time, you know, being able to pick and choose, you're not buying the whole thing lock stock. So let me read a, a comment that came from Akumu Onjumi Charles on Facebook. He says, most, if not all nations of Africa being as young as they are, should be encouraged to seek learning from anywhere or everywhere. But a communist nation that suppresses the rights and freedoms of its people would for sure not be a part of what Africa should aspire to learn from. Just like the nations of West that advocate for democracy as the solution to all governance issues facing Africa 
and yet concealed in that doctrine is nothing but grandiose self-interest, a perpetuation of the status quo that enhances the growth and development of their people at the expense of Africans. So that's a, a really interesting point of view, Ryan. And I'm, I'm, I'm kind of curious on your, your take on this, in part because um, one of your aspirations that you talked about is that you might want to consider joining the United States Foreign Service. And as being a diplomat in, in, in places like Africa, you're representing a political system. Um, how do you balance out, you know, seeing what's best for Africa, what's your own heritage in the United States, and, of course, what uh, looking at the Chinese system? What's, how do you balance all those out? That's a great question, and I'm, I'm still struggling with it. It's not something that I've, I've been able to figure out. It's, um, it's definitely, like, talking to Tanzanians, it was really interesting to hear that a lot of them really wished – they could have sort of the um, just just one and done like uh, the, the the authority that the the Chinese government has to sort of just make decisions without really um, worrying about democracy is something that um, a lot of Tanzanians said. Wow, that would be nice to just be able to if we want to build a bridge, we could just build the bridge. Um, but then um, on the other side of that, if you want to just disappear someone, it's a little easier in a, a Chinese system versus a Western system. Um, so hey, don't I, hey, no 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 hold on hold on hold on hold on hold on. You see, we okay. say this is part of the hypocrisy here. We say in the West that it's a little bit more difficult in China, a little more more difficult in the West to disappear somebody. Yet the United States for ten years had a rendition program that did exactly that, where we just yeah, took people off true. without any, and we do it very very well. Now it's nowhere yeah. near the scale. But yet, bear in mind too that we lock up, you know, with the United with China, we we lock up more people than the rest of I think it's the rest of the world combined. We lock up, uh, we have the highest prison rate, incarceration rate in the developed world. So now, of course, there's a there's a legal process that's there, but you know, it's a very questionable legal process in many respects. And, and yeah, you know, particularly for minorities. And so, you know, it's just that's where I get frustrated with, with the Western point of view on this. Yeah, I, um, I definitely see – yeah, I see that. Um, and I, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm right with you in criticizing the rendition program. And I think looking at the, the disparities of the U.S. justice system, they're definitely there. Um, but there is also I, – I, I mean, I really don't feel like we have the same corruption. We have um, due processes in mm-hmm. a lot of ways. And um, there's there's such room for oversight and for citizens to really criticize um, and argue with with officials. And then maybe, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I really didn't see that when I was in China, maybe a little bit on the internet, but that's something that can be controlled easier. Um, no, so, China's uh, legal system offers that, very little to be inspired by. I mean, if anything at yes. all. But I'm, I guess my point of view is the fact that, you know, I, you know, the, the U.S., you know, thinks of itself in very different terms in the reality. And I, and I, you know, when I was in living in Los Angeles, I had a regular lunch uh, kind of once every three or four months with a friend of mine who was a political attache at the Chinese consulate. And this was uh, in the wake of uh, of the Iraq War. And he said something very interesting to me. He said, ever since the United States opened Guantanamo Bay, that the United States stopped asking for prison inspections in China. Mm. And it's because oh, they really? knew that they oh, lost the moral high ground. Because the Chinese said, well, we'll show you ours if you show me yours. And that yeah. said, if you let us into Guantanamo Bay, as the, as, as the international community did want to see, and, and uh, you know, they let him in once, and then they never let him in again. Uh, but we lost the moral high ground there. And I think a lot of governments around the world saw that and, and see the hypocrisy. We talked about the hypocrisy of the IMF and the World Bank. And I think that there's been a lot of hypocrisy that's come out of the West. And so people look for alternative political systems. 
you know, Cobus. And I think. Oh, go ahead. The, the Facebook comment that you said that Africans um, would, would be pulling from systems that work, that's that's something that I, I think is, is so great. The idea that um, so many of these countries are so young that they can continue to, to sort of take things from the Chinese system that work, take things from the American system that work or the, the Western system. Uh, but to, to I think you're, you're spot on to, to say that to, um, just exporting all either all of the U.S. system or all of the Chinese system obviously isn't going to work. And I think that um, from African leaders are, are really realistic to that fact for the most part. Now, Kobus, l- let's talk about the elephant in the room here. You know, Joseph Kabila in the DRC, he doesn't want any of it. Well, the only system he wants is one that <laughs> will actually put as much money in his pockets. Um, you know, are we kind of as academic analyst followers here, you know, kind of, you know, smoking something that is out of touch with the, with the current realities of governance in Africa, which tends to be extraordinarily corrupt? Yeah, I, you know, kind of, I, I, I tend to get a little frustrated sometimes with this kind of debate where people talk, um, talk about, oh, Africa should try this political system or that political system as, is, as if Africa doesn't have a political system as at the moment. Excellent point. You know, kind of, Excellent to have a political point. system, it's, it's not, it's not necessarily a very good one, but it, they have it for particular reasons. And one of the reasons is that certain African leaders prefer a weak system. Um, I think it's very, it's like that in Zimbabwe, you know, kind of um, in the, and you frequently, even in South Africa, what you find frequently is that the, the, the lines between the civil service and the party is blurred already. You know, kind of, so I, I quoted Khalima Muklante, who's very high up in the, in the ruling party in South Africa, saying that, oh, the, the civil service should be politically directed, which was quite ironic for me, because in South Africa, they already are. Um, you know, so you, when, when leaders change uh, at the top in the party, you see people suddenly changing all over the civil service as well um, in South Africa. You know, kind of, it's not a separate situation like the EPA, for example, is in, in the US, where no matter who's in power, the EPA has its own processes and, you know, it, you know, um, so, it's it's a, it's an ironic thing that you know kind of it's already warped uh, according to to lines of power and the lines of power in Africa frequently run according to the party and it runs according to ethnicity um, and that was an interesting thing for me in in this this Kenyan official that they that they quoted because one of the reasons that that she said that Africa should consider uh, the Chinese system is that the Chinese system managed to achieve ethnic co- cohesion, which I think is a misreading of the Chinese system. Yeah, and that's a very questionable point. Yeah. Exactly. Well, ethnic cohesion in China is one that's, that's brought together by force in many respects. So, yeah. you know, that's, that, that's kind of... But that, that, that also points out another, you know point here is that there's oftentimes a, a, a misunderstanding is that people will look at the economic growth of China and say, I want what they've got. And, and, and Ryan, to your point, I don't know if you've read, you know, The World is Flat by Tom Friedman, but he has a whole chapter in there saying he'd like to be China for a day, you know, because <laughs> China for a day can deliver amazing things. They can build highways, oh, yeah. they can build, you know, but on the second day, eh, it gets kind well, of That was something sticky. that came up in our, in our Chinese classes was that um, the just the the skepticism that is inherent in Western political thought of the the government, uh, maybe it's just the U.S. actually, but that's a U.S. Just a fear thing. of that's the U.S. government. Uh, okay, good. Um, so just a fear of the U.S. government, um, sort of um, constant criticism is, is it makes it very hard and very slow to get things done. Um, and in a lot of ways, that um, can be very frustrating and it, it makes things slower. 
Um, but something that um, our professors pointed out while we were in China was that if, if a Chinese government official wants to build a dam or a bridge, it's much quicker than in the U.S. because they, they're not as beholden to, um, to, to um, public interests and things like that. So the... Um, so it's much easier to build a dam, but like a, it's it's also a bit easier to um, to to have a cultural revolution or something like that in in years past. And um, things are moving in a better direction in China. And I think hopefully things are moving in a better direction in the U.S. as there continues to be criticism and, and conversation. Like Guantanamo, hopefully will be closing um, if if those news reports are, are true from Obama. Um, but just the idea that things take a, a slow, long time and the um, emulation from, of countries of the U.S. system or the Chinese system um, doesn't seem to be very, very true or very um, realistic. And and just to just a word here, I mean, you know, obviously your professor's got a lot of insights, you know, on the system, but at the same time, you know, mm-hmm. there's very, very large and vocal special interest and public interest constituencies in China as well now. And, you know, in the era of Weibo and the era of social media, it's becoming increasingly difficult in China as well. So, you know, we have this, yes. this vision of China being this authoritarian communist system that basically says we're putting a road here and they do it. Now, they do it more effectively in many respects than other countries do, but now opposition is in fact growing. I think it's also worth pointing out that this is not a debate just going on in Africa. Uh, Brazil really represents a, a uh, you know, a, a similar kind of petri dish here because they too have rejected in many many cases the 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 kind of the Washington consensus, the the IMF uh, World Bank system as we talked about, and they're very much going towards a more socialist type of system. Uh, so there are a number of different debates going on here in a- in Southeast Asia where I'm at. Uh, this is a debate in Vietnam. Certainly India for a long time has had, you know, the same kind of what can we pick and choose from other systems. So this is really a global phenomenon that, that's taking place. Kobus, let me give the final word to you on this topic in terms of what your your thoughts are on what can African states – and again, we talk about Africa as a single political entity, and this is where it really all breaks down. Because to kind of say, well, Egypt and South Africa, you know, couldn't be more apart in, in, in what they're confronting. So – I hate to kind of even use the word Africa in this context because it just doesn't fit. But let's, for the sake of our our discussion here, talk about is there anything that you think that could be cherry-picked or is this really purely an academic debate? No, I think I think there are things that can be that can be um, chosen. I think one thing that a very interesting one for me is that the Chinese system, as you know, for all its faults, it managed to put an incredible focus on education and training, um, and that you know part of that is East Asia. I mean, East Asia as, as a as a you know continental culture is just the maybe the most exam obsessed in the world um, and it's true in Japan and South Korea as well um, but you know in China has, has focused a lot on getting a lot of people literate, getting a lot of people through universities particularly and women and girls, women and girls, yes. that was something yes. that the communists yes. you know, before the communists came to power uh, was a huge discrepancy between men and women and girls in education so sorry to interrupt you but I just wanted to make that, yes. uh, that key point Exactly. So, you know, so for example, if you compare it to South Africa, at the moment South Africa is going through this, <laughs> this big problem where the, the Minister of Education, Minister of Basic Education is in a massive titanic fight with the 
teachers' union. And the teachers' union tends to go on strike a lot, um, just generally. But also they, they tend to go on strike right before the national exams because that then they, they kind of they can they can impose as many demands as they as they want because the government is desperate to get them back to work. Because the the um, final high school pass rate in South Africa is awful. It's really it's shockingly low. It's much lower than than a lot of other African countries that are much poorer than South Africa. Um, so you have a situation where they are now such kind of uh, battle between between this minister and the union that the, that the union this week actually paraded because the I'm sorry to put it this way but like the the, the minister is rotund she is she, she's a, a curvy lady and um, so they they were protesting in the street and they actually they were parading a very large pair of panties around which be, you know kind of as, as a provocation just basically you know kind of um, and she kind of published an open letter to them accusing them of sexism and it just goes on like this it just never ends um, and meanwhile more and more South African children are failing even if they get into university they can't make it in university because they're not literal enough you know so this is a classic China situation where they would like break the union and get people to write the exam um, you know and in South Africa it, it just isn't working so I have a certain amount of sympathy for people who who uh, you know kind of you know have well sympathy for people who have sympathy for the Chinese system um, it makes me a little in, in the case of Africa it makes me a bit worried because Africa has a long history of suppressing the press has a long history of a very strong central party and it didn't deliver any kind of economic growth so you know kind of they might simply take over the Chinese system and it might not lead anywhere that's the big problem like the Chinese government have, for you can say what you want about them they have vision. <laughs> about where they, they want may to go. have vision, but um, you know we yeah. can see in North Africa, you know, in the wake of the Arab Spring, you know, when you know there was all this anticipation of democracy in Tunisia and, and in Egypt, uh, and what that's brought now, and what that's brought is uh, you know increased violence, increased tension, uh, and democracy has not solved the problems. Uh, I'm not suggesting that democracy is should be avoided. I'm just suggesting that uh, it, it is extraordinarily complex, and uh, and the Western way, uh, for the most part part over the past half century in Africa has not brought the dividends that I think most of us would have liked to have seen. Uh, so, but this is a question that we, we have going on right now over on our Facebook page. So uh, just scroll down a little bit. You'll, you know, into about a week and a half ago and you'll see the comments uh, and the article that we put up. It was our question of the day, which we put up from time to time. Uh, we'd like to hear from you, uh, you know, and so, but if you want to follow what Cobus is reading and doing there in Johannesburg, Cobus, where can people find you? I'm on our Facebook page almost every day, um, and I'm also on Twitter at Stadenesk. That's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. And Ryan, are, are you out there on the uh, on the social networks uh, talking about hey. China Africa? Damn, especially on Facebook. I don't. I have a Twitter, but I'm just an observer on it. But if anyone would like to get in touch with me to maybe possibly coordinate some research or or just talk about these issues, um, I'm available at Ryan Ryan Michael Knight. Um, I live in Spokane. Um, and you can find my, my name on Facebook. And then also, um, if you want to reach out to me, my email address is rknidht13 at my.whitworth.edu. 
And we hope to see you on our Facebook page, uh, commenting and participating in the discussions that are there. Uh, if you'd like to follow me on Twitter, I'm at E-O-Lander, E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. I'm tweeting the top China-Africa stories almost every day. And, of course, uh, I'm on Facebook quite a bit. Uh, and so between Cobus and I, we cover about 18 hours of the day. So people think that we must be just some machine <laughs> cranking out the content here. Uh, but we do love the discussion that we have. Uh, we'd also like for you to kind of tell us what you think of the show and the podcast. You can find us on iTunes. Give us a vote. You know, so, uh, so Ryan, we're not going to bribe you just with an invitation to come on. But, you know, go ahead and actually, you know, rate us on uh, on on iTunes, because the more that we get some feedback, the the, the kind of the higher it moves into in, in the Apple ecosystem. And our dream one day is to be on that Apple homepage. So, um, so we'd love to have your feedback. But you can also subscribe on SoundCloud. We're on Stitcher, and particularly in South Africa, we're on the BlackBerry network, which is very uh, very important there. So uh, that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. We'll be back on Sunday with another edition of the show. Until then, thank you so much for listening. <laughs>